Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. I hope you've had a great short working week and looking forward to the weekend. Thank you for the feedback on the interview with Minister Meish last week. I got some interesting comments directly to me. And I just wanted to remind you all that if you do have a story, we have a Your Voice section on RTL Today where if you have a view and want to share it, we'd love to hear from you. And you can DM me on social media and I'll make sure to get your message to the editors. Of course, I'm always happy to hear from you and your ideas about what topics or people would be interesting to you to hear on my show. And to today's show, well, the third edition of the Intellectual Property and Youth Scoreboard Study from the EU IPO, the European Union Intellectual Property Office, has just been released. So I'm going to talk through that with Julio Laporta, who is joining us from Alicante in Spain. Also coming up today, we're going to talk music. In the studio with me, Vanessa Coombe, the new president of Fête de la Musique, and Séverine Zimmer, the coordinator of the festival. Also in the studio is David John Pike, a professional singer, to talk to us about his upcoming performance with the Chœur de Chambre de Luxembourg. But first of all, let's start with IP, intellectual property, and Julio Laporta. The Lisa Burke Show. Now, the third edition of the Intellectual Property and Youth Scoreboard study from the EU IPO, the European Union Intellectual Property Office, has just been released. Julio Laporta will do the honours of talking us through what that means. Now, a lawyer by profession, Julio is the spokesperson and head of communications at EU IPO, which is the EU agency responsible for the registration and management of EU trademarks and designs, passionate about intellectual property affairs and communications. The EU IPO is one of the largest decentralised agencies of the EU based in wonderful Alicante in Spain. So they've definitely got better weather than we currently have here in Luxembourg. Last year, it ranked as the most innovative intellectual property office in the world. The EU IPO manages the registration of the European Union trademark, EUTM, and the registered community design, RCM, which provide intellectual property protection to all EU member states. It also carries out cooperation activities with the national and regional intellectual property offices of the EU and hosts the European Observatory on Infringements of Intellectual Property Rights. Now, the European Observatory on Infringements of Intellectual Property Rights was set up in 2009 to support the protection and enforcement of intellectual property rights and to help combat the growing threat of intellectual property infringement in Europe. And this outfit was transferred to the EU IPO in 2012. So, Julio, that's uh, quite a long introduction to you and your work and your team's work. Thank you for joining us from wonderful Alicante. It's a pleasure to be here with you, even though it is virtual presence. (laughs) And it's great to uh, have a time to chat with you and with our parents at Luxembourg. Thank you so much. So talk us through the findings of the latest report. Okay, well, I'll start by explaining to you what is the difference in our report between piracy and counterfeiting, okay? Because once one has this information clear in the mind, it's easier to understand the results. When we talk about piracy, we are talking about accessing online digital content in a manner which is not legal, okay? And when we talk about counterfeiting, we are talking about buying, products, goods uh, from uh, the market, which are not the original products. So we measure and we compare and we analyze these two elements, piracy and counterfeiting, okay? And we've done this this time with regard to the youngsters, the young generation between 15 and 24 years old, okay? And we do this on a regular basis to see how this uh, behavior evolves in time. We've done it in 2016, we've done it in 2019, and we've done it just now in 2022. What is the latest report telling us? Well, it's telling us that 52% in the European Union of the the youngsters that responded to our survey, 52% admit to have bought at least one fake product online over the last year. 
intentionally or by accident. This as far as counterfeiting, buying illegal products. And then for accessing piracy, pirated content, it is 33%. One in every three youngsters accessed online pirated content. Now, if we go a little bit more into detail to see what is the situation or the behavior of the youngsters in Luxembourg, we can see that for counterfeited goods, a 34 of the Lungerburgish youth reported buying intentionally products which are not legal. Remember what I started saying. At the European Union, 52% of the Europeans admitted to have bought counterfeit products. Out of these 52% at EU level, 37% admit to have done it intentionally. And the figure for Luxembourg is 34%. So it is slightly lower than the average of the European Union youngsters. So their behavior, let's say, is a bit better than the rest. On the other hand, when we go to uh, piracy, which is accessing online illegal content like movies or music or pictures, things like that, the situation, the landscape is slightly different. We know that in the European Union, 33% of the youngsters accessed pirated content, 21% did it on purpose, and the situation for Luxembourg is a percentage is a bit higher, 21% for the European Union, 28% for the Luxembourgish youngsters. Mm-hmm. And why is it that you look at this age group 15 to 24? Why is it that the youth section is important to you to look at for the statistics? It, it's very relevant for two factors. The first one is because they're new to life. We need to assess how much knowledge or awareness they have about this topic of creating and respecting what others have created. And on the other hand, because it is good for them. I mean, they are the future generations of entrepreneurs. They will be the ones building up or creating or launching the new startups. So it's good that they know that if they do create, they deserve protection and they need to understand or know that we are there to provide them with this uh, intelligence, with this knowledge, with this support. So one of the main goals of the European Union Intellectual Property Office is to help in protecting creativity. And not only for youngsters or young entrepreneurs, we do it for all the creators. So we have a lot of entrepreneurs or small and medium enterprises that come to us and they want to protect their trademarks or their designs, but we also have big companies. The population of the youngsters is crucial. The sooner they get to understand that respecting IP, avoiding copies in the market, it's gonna be the better for them to fare in the future, but also for the society and the economy as a whole. But I think for a lot of young people, the reason they are a certain proportion is, I think you said uh, 34% in Luxembourg, 37% across Europe, intentionally buy counterfeit or pirated goods. It's because they're trying to keep up with their peers. They're trying to, you know, look at the films or play the video games or buy the clothing to keep up with their peers. That might be an element for the youngsters. Absolutely. There are various elements. One is, for example, the product or its costs in general. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. it's, it's, these products are normally either for free available. The pirated content is for free or, or the counterfeited products are cheaper than the original product. So one of the drivers we know is cost. Another driver sometimes happens to be that they don't really care or they cannot identify the difference. And another one is, as you mentioned, others are doing it. So why not me? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why we come here. We come with these studies to tell uh, youngsters, but and not so youngsters, we'll tell them, guys, there's an impact. There's an impact. When you do buy um, counterfeited products or you access online pirated content, there is damage. You cause a lot of damage. The first thing is you may damage yourself because there is these products or this content is not subject to any law protecting you. For example, the, the, the products themselves, they do not respect, as you can imagine, any law for safety and health. And we've seen products like toys or clothing or any sort of things, even pharmaceuticals, that they don't have any any respect for any regulation and they will cause you a damage when you take it or when you wear it on. And the same goes with the online pirated content. When you do that through websites which have this content, you are subject to a high risk of cyber squatting or cyber fraud. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is damage to you, but there's also damage to the economy because 670,000 jobs are lost in the European Union every year because of this trend, because companies cannot maintain these people because they say the consumers are buying fake products and not legal products. Also, governments lose money. Why? Because we've also done studies, not the subject of this study, but the governments don't collect 19.19 billion euros in taxes every year because this is money which is out of circulation. So when you see all these big picture, then you realize, well, uh, my act of buying a handbag which is fake or watching a movie through an online platform which is not subject to any control has an impact. And and we've, we will also do some studies, and this is very interesting, you, you may find, together with Europol, which is the agency for investigation of crime in the European Union. And one thing that has been established, and it is documented, is that all this industry of piracy, because there's an industry behind, they get this money, and with this money they finance other illegal activities, such as drug trafficking, persons trafficking, and even terrorism. So they're the only ones who win. Gosh, wow. (laughs) You're putting it really into context there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to to keep this in mind when and think it twice. Yeah. Well, I was very, I mean, you've mentioned it, but I was really uh, surprised when I was reading about the variety of piracy and counterfeit goods. You mentioned hygiene products and pharmaceuticals. And I was wondering how they could be counterfeit, because if we buy something like that, I mean, I I suppose in my case, I buy it normally from a supermarket or a pharmacy, so I'm assuming it's real. But where would people buy a counterfeit hygiene product or a counterfeit uh, pharmaceutical product? This act of buying illegal products, sometimes it's a a street market, for example, when it comes to clothing or fashion articles, things like that. We've seen that, unfortunately, in some of our cities, but most of it comes through online uh, buying. But there are legal sites to buy things. When you want to buy your products online, you know where there are the legal sites. And then you have to make sure that the site is secure. There are some hints. Sometimes you find mistakes in the in the language or things like that. That's suspicious thing. So I'm not saying, of course, that nobody, I myself, everybody is buying online. But Pay double attention. Normally, these things come uh, through um, acts of buying that happens online, and they come in small parcels from all over the world to our homes. Mm-hmm. Supermarkets, normally, the traditional brick and mortar shops, that's unlikely to happen to you. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah, no, I wouldn't think about buying pharmaceuticals online. Uh, No, that would be far too risky, I think. But um, just thinking about the reports that you've done through the years, I think you said you started in 2016, was it? And then there was a little gap through COVID times. What changes have you observed year on year with respect to this age group 15 to 24? Well, one of the things we've seen is in reality, 
a big boost of the online sales that happened in 2020 when yeah. we were locked at home. And then what you see is that there is an increased majority of young people that that's a positive move as well. Okay, 60% of the respondents in the European Union, as compared to 50% in 2019, they say that they prefer legal alternatives compared to pirate content. Why is that? Because we can already see that there are more available legal sites where you can ask for this content. You can see there are a myriad of legal streaming platforms. They are more affordable, the quality is better. The youngsters and the older generations, we see these places as a secure environment, easier to plug in with our legal devices and to watch our stream legal content to our homes. So this move is, the the market has also improved in a sense. For example, ourselves, with regard to products, we have a project where we are collaborating with the biggest e-market platforms. I mean, the ones who everybody knows are like the the likes of Amazon or Alibaba, etc. We have a project collaborating with them because they are the first ones interested in not selling counterfeiting products. Well, that's fantastic. Because they also have They also have a responsibility. So we are connecting with them. We are working together with them. We are providing them all with this information, with legal support so that they understand this. And you go into our website, you can, there's a section dedicated to these online legal marketplaces where you can see what are the initiatives they, they are taking in protecting the intellectual property rights for the benefit of the consumers. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to just open up a little bit more to to your role at EUIPO, because before I read this report, I had not heard of EUIPO, and I would like our audience to know more about who you are and what you stand for. Well, at the European Union Intellectual Property Office, we are a branch let's put it like this, of the European Union set of institutions and agencies. Uh, We have three main roles. One is if a company of any size or or, or a person wants to protect their trademark, they can come to us and we will register that trademark. Or if you want to protect your design, we do also the same. So that's the first business we have. To put it like this, it's not the business, okay? Mm-hmm. But we do the registration of trademark and design for the entire European Union. What's, that's one of our activities. The second activity is we cooperate at international level, okay, for the benefit of EU creators and industries. We work with other countries in the world in order to raise awareness of IP protection there. So we have, and this we do it in the collaboration with the European Commission. So we have offices and people working for IP offices in China, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, in Africa as well. That's the second big thing we do. And the third thing is we produce these studies. We produce, we do this analysis of the behavior or the impact of the of IP, intellectual property in the economy. Because once you get to understand better this, then you are closer to respect it or to value, or even we give it to to legislators so that they say, when they see these reports, say, well, it's worth protecting or put an effort. I'll give you a couple of examples, no? For example, we do also a big study with its, which is the impact of these companies that create and protect their intellectual property in the European Union, in the economy of the European Union. And we've seen that one third of the jobs in the European Union is connected with these companies. And one fourth of the GDP of the European Union, it is connected with these companies. So once we give this to the legislators, the legislators see the value and they make the protection even stronger Mm -hmm. and they are more aware. The second example I want to give you is precisely this study 
I told you about we did together with the Europol uh, on on the connections between uh, infringing intellectual property and IP crime, these criminals that use this money to fund illegal activities. This and other studies we've, we've done, which are similar to this one, have helped the legislators and the European Council to raise the profile of IP crime. What does it mean? Every four years, the uh, European Council decides which are going to be the 10 priorities in crime prosecution at European Union level. One of the 10 priorities is going to be IP crime. Mm-hmm. And this is because of all this intelligence we've been able to provide them with. Now, there is a problem here, and then you will understand why we do these studies. And you mentioned yourself, you were not aware that we even existed before you got this information. And I can only understand that. It is because the the, the expression intellectual property or all these words of trademarks, patent, they float around, but they are difficult to grasp. And we understand that. So, oh, well, I, I have no doubt how important intellectual property is. And I have absolutely a clear notion of what that means. But you are right. I'm not very clear on the differences between IP. And I know it's, it varies between topic and subject and then trademarks. And some of them have a certain number of years to run. And it it is extremely complex. So, yes, please do talk us through the variations that you have to deal with. Okay, let's let's take an example of a telephone. Okay, everybody has one in the pocket. So you create a telephone. Imagine you are the first one to create one smartphone. And then you say, well, I've created something, so I want to protect it. It's only fair. I invested a lot of time and effort and resources to invent this thing for the first time. So I want to protected so I can recover my investment in developing it. And this parallelism, you can do it with anything. You can say, I've taken a picture or I've written a song or I've written a book or I just created a new sign to put on my clothing. So after creating this, how can I protect it? So this is where it comes the language I'm, I'm using. All these forms of protection are referred as an umbrella expression under intellectual property, the property of the intellect, something which is the protection of, and not really true, but sort of protection of ideas. But we only protect ideas when they materialize into something like a telephone. (laughs) So let's go bit by bit. One thing is um, this telephone when you go to the shop, you're going to ask for it using a name. Yeah. You want to say, I want a Samsung telephone or an Apple telephone. Samsung and Apple, the name, are called trademarks. That's one form of protecting. So, okay, I want to protect the name of the phone. I will need a trademark. I want also to protect the logo, Okay. So the logo, you can also protect it as a trademark. So you can have two trademarks, sometimes even more. But this shape is different. Remember when the smartphones came into into the market, the old telephones had all the the keyboard. Now, this one didn't have a keyboard. So the shape was a new shape for the product. So the shape, you protect it as a design. So remember, we have a trademark. For the name, Samsung Apple, we have a a trademark for the logo, the little apple. Then we have a design to protect the shape. But inside this device, there are a lot of chips and and connections. And the screen, you touch the screen, oh, and it's wonderful. There was a time (laughs) where screens could not be touched. Or even if you touch them, nothing would happen. Uh So... That's an invention, technological invention. And this is what you protect with a patent. So we have now trademarks, we have the design, we have a patent. And then you have inside this device, oh, wonders of technology, you have music. 
which is composed by composers from all around the world. And you have millions of songs. And that is what is protected through copyright. Wow. So in this <laughs> device, you have a lot of creations and each creation is protected in a different manner. And you assemble all them and then you owner or creator of the device, you can protect them. And then you can claim that others respect your protection so that you, the creator, who have invested a lot of time and effort, you can recover your investment and make money. Otherwise, what incentive will there be if once you put it in the market, anybody could copy it? Well, the problem is that for clever people who know their business, whether it be in making a phone or making a medicine, I think it's true that, well, for instance, patents just, they last for a certain number of years. But if, uh, let's say, a chemist is clever enough to be able to detangle the molecular formula of a chemical, they just need to do one small tweak, and that's a completely new molecule, a new product, but it might do the same job. I cannot speak for patents because we are the trademark and design office, okay? And I'm not an expert myself in patents. But I would say that patents, and it so happened with other uh, IP rights, like is the case of designs, uh, in these two cases, they end the protection after 20 years with the goal of allowing others to do it. And that happens with a lot of uh, formulas. For example, if you take the, the formula of the um, aspirin, anybody can use that. I don't remember the, how to say the expression in English. I think acid acetyl salicylic or something salicylic like that. Anybody acid, can yeah. do it. Yeah. Or paracetamol. Anybody can do paracetamol and then you will have your own brand for it. That's another thing. But anybody can use that molecule. So I'm not going to go into details of specific cases, but I can tell you that the, the goal of the system in some scenarios that the protection ends so that others, after you are assumingly recovered your investment, anybody's yeah. can do it. And that's the case, for, surely, for patents. In your experience in this world, and I know you've got a background as a lawyer, what has been the hardest thing to protect? I think we are now protecting new things and the law sometimes it takes a bit of time to catch up with reality. I'll give you an example. Normally we speak about trademark and the two examples I've given you before was the, a name like Apple or Samsung or a logo. That can be protected as a trademark. But there are tunes short bits of music yes. <laughs> that you can also recognize as coming from some companies. Yes. For example, if I say, tirorito, 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 ti, <laughs> that's the old tune of a Nokia phone. Mm -hmm. That probably everybody in the world knows. Okay. So that tune, because it makes you connect with a specific product of a company, can be a trademark as well. And this is the latest trends we are seeing. And that's why four years ago, we changed our trademark law to protect those tunes that are today a reality in the market and the consumer is perceiving as a call from a specific brand. And you can see that more and more. So we need to adapt the legislation. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And then uh, alongside that uh, and linked to that, really, what are the grey areas where it's not so clear? I suppose it falls into the world of things that are not yet legislated. So apart from like uh, snippets of music, what other grey areas do you have to face? I think the great, uh, the darkest area for us is to understand what we mean when we say intellectual property. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We need to convey this message to the citizens and to the society so that they understand. I don't want, we don't expect the people to be experts, okay? But it is clear that when you buy a house, 
that is real state, real. <laughs> real state is something you can touch, okay? And, but when you, you, you speak about intellectual property, it sounds like, like smoke, <laughs> like a cloud in the air, and, and you cannot touch it. So this is where 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 we come in. This is for us. Uh, these these activities, exactly this activity I'm doing now together with you and your uh, radio station and your program, is to explain that this cloud in the sky called intellectual property has an, a tangible, a tangible impact on you, as a, on the positive side, because it creates and generates wealth for society, for companies, for growth, and also a downside which is dangerous. I would say that's the most important thing uh, we have now and the biggest challenge right now. And to move to um, the other part of your work, you also house the European Observatory on Infringements of Intellectual Property Rights. So how do you go about finding these infringers, the people who produce the pirated versions of video games or films or the counterfeit products? In the field of enforcement, we are not executive in the sense that we don't have EU IPO people running <laughs> on the streets and raiding everyone. No. <laughs> what we do is we provide this support to the ones who know how to do it. Mm -hmm. So for example, we collaborate very closely with Europol. Yeah. So we explain them exactly what I'm telling you, what is intellectual property, what is important, how to identify, and they are the ones who go and do the, uh, the actions with the police at national level. We do work as well with the officers at borders. We explain them how to recognize what is real and what is unreal and to make the distinction so that they can stop in the border what is unreal. We work with judges, we work with prosecutors, we organize conferences with them, we explain them how it works. We work also with the owners of the creations. We've created, for example, a big database so that we connect the owners of these creations which are protected with the police in the member states and with the officers at borders so that they can interchange this information fluently. That we call it the intellectual property enforcement portal. We provide support to all those who really have the competence and the ones who have the, the feet on the ground to actually be able to execute these policies. And as consumers, if uh, these young people or even adults or anybody listening happens to buy a counterfeit product or a pirated item, is that a crime? Are we committing a crime if we do that? We're not committing a crime, even though in under some legislations, it may be considered a crime, okay? But I think the most important thing is not to consider we are criminals, okay? Um, we need to make sure that we don't do that on purpose because then we have, I would say, a moral responsibility for what I was telling you before. We are contributing, even if it is with one euro or two euros, to IP crime. And that's serious thing, okay? It's something which is not uh, without any impact. It's not poor people selling counterfeit products because they don't have anything on the streets. It's not like that. They try to sell it, this atmosphere to us as a, as a harmless thing. It is not it is not, definitely it is not. We've demonstrated the connection with that and think it twice. Is a moral. For me, it's more important the moral consequence than, let's say, the real one. But I tell you, under some jurisdictions, I, I, at national level, it may even be considered there is certain responsibility for the one who buys uh, these products. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Finally, I wanted to draw your attention. I know you can't comment on specific cases, but we've had one in the news recently, a very newsworthy case here in Luxembourg of Jeff Dieschberg, who seems to have appropriated the work of Jinga Zhang and Becca Bjorke, two US artists who called him out about this on Twitter because he won money for it. So he's an artist. He seems to have 
well, I suppose I could use the word copied. The work of these artists is very, very, very similar. What do you think about that? As you rightly say, I cannot comment <laughs> specific case. Yes, yes. But I, I'll tell you something. I think every creator deserves protection. But one very important thing for every creator when it's creating is that be careful from where you draw your inspiration. I will say the same thing I told my teenage son, okay? <laughs> when you study for your tests, you don't want to be copied, right? No, no. Nobody should be, okay? You, when you do an effort for something, you know you deserve. The merit is for you. So that happens in your entire life and in business. And when you are accessing pirated online content or buying counterfeited products, you are copying in a test without any effort background. Julio, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. It's a, really a, a great pleasure to have you joining us here in Luxembourg from Alicante. Thank you for your time. A pleasure. Thank you so much. The Lisa Burke Show. Well, it seems that after almost two years of a COVID hiatus, things are getting pretty busy and the choices abound as to what's on offer. We're going to talk music. I'm joined by Vanessa Kuhn, the new president of Fête de la Musique, and Severine Zimmer, the coordinator of the festival. And also in the studio is David John Pike, a professional singer, to talk about his upcoming performance with the Chœur de Chambre de Luxembourg. So welcome to you all. A huge pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great to have you here. Fête de la Musique. It's the biggest musical concert, or many concerts in the country, 300 concerts, in fact, in just six days from the 16th to the 21st of June. And to give you a little introduction to my two guests, Vanessa worked with the Luxembourg Export Office Music LX, which is now part of Culture LX, and she helped to promote and export artists from Luxembourg. Vanessa was then in charge of cultural event logistics at Cercle Cité for seven years. And following that came five years with the festival Food for Your Senses. Mm. And since <laughs> we've been talking food just before we went live <laughs> and since 2019 Vanessa's part of the cultural coordination team at the municipal office who look after all events in the capital city of Luxembourg Severine Zimmer it created Services for Creatives a cultural and artistic management company based in Luxembourg after 15 years of expertise in the cultural sector in Luxembourg and they manage all sorts of cultural projects including the national coordination of Fête la Musique. So you're very well positioned to sort out this festival. So for the listeners who have recently come to Luxembourg, and I know we've all suffered from COVID, what is Fête de la Musique? Fête de la Musique is, uh, is an important uh, date in France uh, in the 60s. There is Jack Lang, a minister of uh, culture. He created this event and this event becomes really international now. Uh, in, in all the world, we celebrate the Fête de la Musique the 21st of June, the day of uh, summer. <laughs> and in February 2000, the Ministry of Culture joined the Association of the Fête Européenne de la Musique Network. And in 2001, the Association of the Fête de la Culture Luxembourg was created to ensure the coordination and the promotion of the country's largest musical event. So Luxembourg decided to join that global festival of music which started in France. Tell us a little bit about the history of it in Luxembourg and how it has, well, it's really boomed. In fact, the concerts around the Fête la Musique started over 30 years ago already, before the association existed. Most people know all the concerts that happened in the city of Luxembourg or in Dudelange, legendary concerts. A lot of municipalities have joined this event over the last years. So now we have, Severin knows better than me, 33 localities or cities 
join the Fête de la Musique. Basically, everybody yeah. in Luxembourg can find one pretty locally. And diversity is key. Absolutely. When I've been reading about it, it seems that you really endeavour to offer a hugely diverse programme with all mm. sorts of music. So tell us about the diversity of music on offer. It was a philosophy of the creation of this event to offer a diversified programme with uh, various aims. It's really important to offer music for all audiences, also that highlights all musical genre. 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 We say the same <laughs> as the French for once. <laughs> um, that allows uh, all musicians to play all types of music and free of charge. It was uh, really the, the philosophy and we continue. It's really important to have these pillars. Yeah, so it's really wonderful that from the initial start in mm. France, that philosophy was there to have diversity, all genres de music and uh, of music so. <laughs> uh, for free of charge so that everybody can really enjoy music and this actually alludes to the interview that I did with Claude Meisch last week where of course one of the introductions for September coming for adults and children is free music lessons or capped at 100 euros per year <laughs> we've got some hand waving from David Pike so uh, it's really great that people can um, you can almost be like a, a launch pad for people to come and enjoy different instruments. So so give us a flavour of some of the concerts you have lined up for us. Well, I'd like to add to this diversity. People can also discover concerts of students. Uh, students from music classes can play or perform concerts side by side with professional musicians. They have not a lot of uh, occasions like this during the year, especially after the two last years. I wanted to add about Ashternach that you'll find this year a very special concert played by a glockenspiel. I don't know how you say that. Carillon or a glockenspiel? Yeah, we say glockenspiel. Like, like a glockenspiel uh, in a, in a duo with a violinist. In wow. a, a violinist? Yes, <laughs> in the Basilica of Ashternach. So a duo of a glockenspiel and a violin. I've never yeah, heard yes. that before. Me neither. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in the Basilica as well. Gosh, that's yeah. going to be uh, something to, uh, to well, well, very interesting sound. But you're right. Uh, talking about students, well, for all sorts of reasons recently, they just haven't had an opportunity to perform at all, uh, along with professional people, in fact. So this is a really fantastic and, like you say, rare opportunity for students to mix with the professional musicians to see what life on stage is like. Because, you know, there's quite a few young people who learn an instrument or are forced to play an instrument by their parents, perhaps, or they really, really want to learn an instrument or sing or perform in some way. And then the next stage of music is that performance element and that isn't always so available, certainly hasn't been so available through COVID times. So I think it's extremely important to have that opportunity. What do you think about all of this, David? I think it's absolutely fantastic. You know, the more opportunities we have for live music, you know, it's like Joni Mitchell saying, you know, uh, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, we've all suffered through this, uh, this dreadful period of, of COVID and, um, you know, now it's back touch wood yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so we have to get out there and support uh, support our fellow musicians have fun enjoy music that's what they're for well I'm going to introduce you now David for our audience for those who may not know you David Pike David John Pike is a Canadian Luxembourg baritone and you pivoted your career from being a chartered accountant a partner with Big oh, yeah. Four still, still recovering chartered accountant actually yeah yeah <laughs> To singing as your main profession about 12 years ago, I believe. That's right. Yeah, well, I'd always sung, you know, uh, to be fair. Well, and, of course, and, and I've got wait for it. You have a wide repertoire. You've performed in oh, venues around the world. And your recital of English songs by Vaughan Williams, Quilter and Finzi earned a five-star review in the BBC Music magazine and was nominated for the International Classical Music Awards and for Recording of the Year by Music Web International. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. You studied at the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto and then the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London and privately with the American-based Daniel Lewis Williams in Germany. And you live with your family in the Moselle. So that's a little introduction for those of Very you who good. Here don't know publicity, you. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's important to, to place you sure. to our audience. Um, so yes, you are a professional musician. Like you've said, you've sung all your life and then you 
pivoted your career. But you've also suffered, we were just talking about COVID. How was that for you as a professional singer? Well, you know, it's uh, we, we all sort of live a precarious life as, as musicians. And, um, and so when this COVID thing hit, uh, all of a sudden, for me, one season just went poof. And then a second season went poof. And there were a few things, uh, you know, during that time where we had opportunities to perform. We did recordings, for example. And, uh, you know, I had one occasion and I was supposed to do Messiahs in Toronto, near Toronto. And it went from sort of three concerts, full houses, to two concerts with sparse seating, to a video, nobody. <laughs> uh, so it's it was somewhat disheartening. Um, uh, but, you know, we did what we could during that time. And I was very, very, very grateful for the... Uh, uh, also the support of, of uh, cultural elects uh, now and the various government programs. And it's come back, you know, uh, just in the run-up to Christmas, I was very busy, I'm happy to say, and then we had the Omicron uh, business that happened and sort of went away. But now I'm happy to say that the summer is full after these Carmina Varana concerts. Uh, Which we'll come to. Grosso, okay, very good. <laughs> I'm off to uh, Ottawa, uh, sorry, off to Leipzig for the, uh, the Bachfest in Leipzig, which I'm excited about, and then to Ottawa for Von Williams uh, concert and so uh, it's gone sort of like London buses, nothing, and then four come along <laughs> all together. So we're very pleased about that. And of course, La Fête de la Musique it does a great uh, job uh, bringing that all back to life. So. Well, actually, yes, uh, Vanessa and Sevrin, you will have suffered uh, similarly. We all suffered in different but similar ways through COVID. How did you manage that through what you do, which is event organization? In 2020, yes, we organized the Journée de la Musique sur les ondes on radio. The 21st of June, the whole day, uh, we contacted all radios uh, to have a special um, programmation uh, on the air. We invited also musicians in the studio. Here in RTL City, we have a group with three musicians, I think. We organize a lot of different stage on, on radio, air, so, on uh, radio. <laughs> which can't transmit COVID. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, we continue this action uh, in 2021 because a lot of radio will really enjoy to participate in this mode. And we, we continue in, in this year also to have uh, five uh, radios. Uh, they program a specific uh, missions for the 21st of June. Well, that's great. I mean, what I really like about the the terrible two years of COVID is that a lot of people have thought about how to pivot again and how to change their well their working ways. And actually thinking about you, and I know we had a chat yesterday, for many people, uh, they've now moved to a portfolio career because you were telling me uh, completely understandably that some of your friends, you know, suddenly found themselves in dire straits because all of their work was suddenly cancelled, gone, and they didn't have anything else to fall back on. And so tell us about your friends, your professional singer friends, and how they've managed to to rethink their working career. Well, I had several friends. Fortunately, my portfolio includes some consulting, includes some teaching at the universities and so on. So, you know, I, get, I got through somehow. Um, I have friends, uh, in fact, sadly, one friend who declared bankruptcy um, through all this. Um, you know, you have commitments and maybe you're not quite as frugal as you should be. Uh, as an artist, and, and uh, some people were in dire straits. However, I have some others who retooled um, rather positively. I have a tenor friend in England, for example, who decided that the NHS, National Health Service, uh, in, in, uh, in his region needed help. Oh, and always. <laughs> absolutely. So he, he uh, retrained as, a, as a, some sort of practitioner and got out to the, uh, to the uh, vaccination centers and worked for the NHS while he was out of work uh, as, a, as a that. prominent tenor. Can you imagine being treated by a professional tenor who comes and sings you to you as you're injected? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's so nice. So I think a lot of us turned, turned to other activities. A lot of teaching went on, a lot of recording. If you had that possibility, of course, that doesn't make a lot of money to be terribly practical. Um, but um, it nonetheless provides some artistic outlet and satisfaction. So, um, um, yeah, we found different things like to do. I'd just like to add, uh, if, if I may, um, that the Fête de la Musique uh, has a partnership with Sassam from Luxembourg. I guess you know, as a radio channel and a musician, you know the Sassam very well. So they are the platform who is paying musicians for their droit d'auteur, so the musicians get for their royalties. Um, 
creations they get money when radio channels are streaming their music or when organizers festivals are booking the musicians and their creations and in fact until 2020 the organizers didn't have to pay these dues to the SASM and from 2020 on to support the musicians with the SASM we decided as the Fête de la Musique that the organizers should pay the dues so that musicians are again supported also during the days of the Fête de la Musique in Luxembourg. That's a really interesting point. So you're saying that if a musician's music was played on the radio or anywhere effectively Mm. in any event, they will be paid royalties for that. Yes. And does it have to be their original creation or if it's a cover? For instance, I know that you do a lot of classical work. So what are the the rules? Uh, I I have to tell you that I don't know. You should ask Mark Nix, who is the director of SASAM in that case, who knows all the details about uh, these yeah, I have to say that the royalties for classical musicians aren't uh, something you can uh, count your Well, I wonder how it on. works, because, um, you know, the composers are no yeah. longer with us often. Yeah. So. Right, so we, we are on a position normally where we pay royalties to, to perform works, um, with a few exceptions, of course, there are modern works that we, that we do where, where royalties are due. Um, but I also, on, on, I have to say, on record sales these days, I've got three CDs out, and um, okay, they're not, uh, you know, Céline Dion or something like this, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, you know, the royalties are fairly meager. So the thing that really makes money for classical musicians um, is live performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so when COVID hit, boy, yeah. uh, it really made a difference. It's not like we're cashing checks every month anyway from royalties or something. That's a bit of a mm-hmm. uh, fantasy that some people hold. But I think that's the case for many musicians, even even the pop musicians, the jazz musicians. I think it's the live performances where they get most of their money these days, from what I understand. Or the, the merchandising. Oh, yeah, of course. In the pop world, <laughs> Or the merch, my, as my, my daughters My t-shirts aren't say. moving as fast as I'd like. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure my youngest daughter actually knew that merch stood for merchandising until I had to explain it to her, because they just say merch, the merch. <laughs> now, David, you mentioned it. We're going to talk about Carmina Burana. Yes, how exciting. Speaking of summer solstice and body things. Yeah, I think a lot of people, whether they know it or not, will know some of the pieces from Carmina. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, whether you're a football fan or, or just watch telly and, and the odd uh, advert, you'll you'll know Au Futurna, as, as it's commonly known as the yes. first, first movement of the, of the work and so on. Yeah, it's a fantastic thing to do in the height of summer. Um, it's about the wheel of fortune, how we're all on this darn thing, and it turns, talking about COVID, um, with misery, with love, with lust, all the vices of life, and uh, and so therefore it's it's a uh, yeah a very gritty and very earthy piece of music. Tell us about the language he uses, Karl Orff. Yeah, well, it's a mix of Latin. I mean, the the the, the poems were actually taken from a, a, a book uh, from a collection of songs uh, from Benedict Boyon, which is a, a, an abbey in Bavaria. And uh, Karl Orff, who is the composer, came across this thing in the mid thirties. And he was fascinated by uh, sort of um, Greek muses and masks and, and things like that. And the, the idea of combining movement, very basic dance, with mm, uh, simple music, if you will. Um, and that was really the center of his work. And so he put this thing together, which was a selection of these of 25, just 25 movements, uh, songs, which are quite racy, actually. They're a little... Her- heretical, you know, they're, they're, they challenge the Roman Catholic Church and they talk about sex and drinking, drinking. and gambling <laughs> and, and then, you know, uh, um, frolicking in spring and, and all those sort of things. Um, and he put this thing together um, and it premiered uh, in Frankfurt in mid-30s, uh, which was obviously a, a troubled time um, in Germany. And Orff was involved in that and, and actually was, was uh, um, accused of Sort of being a Nazi sympathizer and so on and so forth. I think the reality is he was an opportunist like so many artists are and um, did what he had to do to get ahead. Uh, wasn't a wealthy man. Um, had personal relationship issues, <laughs> three marriages and so on and so forth. So he had some obligations to, to take care of. Um, but anyway, uh, it became sort of a, a favorite of the regime a little bit. Um, and after the war, despite that, went on to be uh, the great work that it is, and it's probably one of the most performed works, classical works uh, around the world today. Well, it's one of those classical pieces that 
everybody can really feel inside them. It, it's so strong and it's so powerful. Very human. It's very human. Yeah. It's about yeah. our, our, our real lives and, uh, and um, uh, the good things and the bad things. Yeah, it's, it's really a motive piece. And so tell us about your involvement then with the Chœur de Chambre de Luxembourg. Well, I've had the great pleasure of doing a number of projects. Um, you know, one of the unfortunate things in, in my Uh, program, if you will, is that I rarely work in Luxembourg, and I, I really regret that. Um, so uh, I'm thrilled, therefore, um, to on occasion have a chance to work with um, with uh, Antonio Grosso, the director, who, of the director of it, who's put this thing together, which is, I think, something just short of a miracle. Uh, what what he's produced here, because what we have is a professional level choir um, that can has a number of voices to take on big symphonic works uh, right here in Luxembourg. Uh, and I think that's Performed a, at the Philharmonie. Absolutely, at the Philharmonie. I just did a Beethoven 9 with them, uh, which was my first project after a while with the uh, Club de Chambre. And I have to say, um, you know, I've done, um, I've worked all over the place. <laughs> and I, I have to say, these guys are fantastic. So really a fantastic professional level choir right here in Luxembourg that's, that's up to singing with uh, any symphony orchestra around the world. Um, So, uh, and of course, I know because I, I know them personally as well, and I used to sing with them. Um, I, I know they that miss you. <laughs> time, time, time. Uh, yes, no, I, I would love to jump in and, and be part of the Carmina Burana. Um, but singing is actually really good for your health. And the irony is that through COVID times, it was, I mean, choirs were almost hit the hardest. And I would see all of the messages coming in about how you had to be certain meters apart because when you sing, you spread. And they do tests all the time. So it was another one of those things that, ironically, singing is so good for your health and particularly socially in a choir. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So uh, you're right. It's, it's, it is a, a social exercise as much as a musical <laughs> outlet and uh, and I think that left a gap in a lot of people's lives it's, it's true to say and there was there were, I, you know I'll tell you on stage last 9th of May Europe uh, Europe day when we did this Beethoven 9 there were tears not only because of the situation in Ukraine we were raising money for the Luxembourgish Red Cross and their relief efforts in Ukraine but also just the fact of being on stage again with a full house of real people who react, who chuckle at something, who maybe might have shed a tear on that occasion. Um, um, and that happened on both sides of, of the stage, I have to say. It was, it was a very moving experience. You're giving so me we're thrilled to be that. Well, we all had goosebumps too. But in fact, another part of, of music, and particularly singing, is that you are the instrument. And so health is everything. I, I saw you, you washed your hands before you came in. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> But you have to, it's, it's not just being a good singer. You have to be consistently healthy. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's you know you you are the instrument, and you need to take care. In this particular work, I've got this, there's a one movement, Dx Nox, Dx Nox uh, Omnia. That's it. Um, I have this uh, these three passages of falsetto where I have to sing very high. very high, which is which is I think a unique occurrence in the baritone repertoire, and. You know, I don't want to bore you with all the details, but it's sort of, you know, you have to make sure your clutch is working, you know what I mean? <laughs> And uh, if for some reason it's not, you're not up to it, if you're not well, uh, that can be a very challenging part, for example, in this in this case. But as you say, it's important to, to stay healthy, all of us. Um, oh, of course, of course. So we've got such a lovely couple of weeks ahead of us. 12th, 13th, 14th, we have Carmine Burrella at the Philharmonie, followed, with one day's break, with the Fête de la Musique. Uh, what are you particularly looking forward to in the Fête de la Musique? Any performances or do you just love them all? I'm looking forward to the uh, Minet on Tour, for instance, who is organized in the framework of Ash 2022. The Harmony from Defardange, who organized concerts all over the day in over 12 communities and municipalities and over 12 different orchestras. They are meeting in the evening as a, a huge finale in uh, the Stade Municipal de Barcorne with um, 2022 musicians. Oh, so I guess that will be very Gosh. huge. Also here in Kirchberg in the park, um, in the amphitheater, just uh, behind the cock, there is a very interesting and more electronic or alternative programmation on a four days festival. And I think the most important thing that after this pandemic, after this, uh, that also to have uh, our 
organizers really, really motivated and to bring music to people in little village, on little place, and also uh, in different uh, uh, situations and also to bring uh, music uh, to uh, uh, people they don't have the possibility to to come as uh, old people in the SIPA houses. So, okay. Well, let's cross fingers that we will have good weather, which will bring people out smiling in yeah. their droves. <laughs> and David, a little bit more about Carmina. Well, simply, it's on the 12th, 13th and 14th at the Philharmonie. There's still some tickets left. I know it's selling very well. It's always a popular thing to to uh, to go see. Um, it's combined with Bolero, which is Maurice Ravel's masterpiece, of course, another hugely popular work, and one that's related also to this sort of fundamental, earthy uh, dance. Any British person will know it because of the ice skating duo. Oh, is that right? Okay, well, yeah, I guess so. Oh, I'm not familiar you don't know about this. Oh, no. gosh, well, you must look up. Well, this is uh, Dean and Bapapa, ba, ba, help me. Yeah, I've forgotten their names, Thank actually. Um, <laughs> Torval and Dean. Torval and That's Dean right, are the ice skating. That's right, I wasn't too far off, eh? you, you had half of them. Right. <laughs> Torval the and Dean thing. are the ice skating duo, yeah. Yeah, well, Bolero, Bolero. wonderful thing. It's just this, this slowly, slowly uh, uh, repetitive uh, work that builds and builds and builds to this enormous climax and, and is a perfect uh, uh, combination with Carmina Burana. Of course, it's uh, from the same time frame. It's interesting to compare uh, Ravel's and, and Orff's background, actually, and their fascination for that sort of music. Anyway, um, and the forces at hand are going to be tremendous. There's, there's this European academic orchestra, which is, which is draws together fantastic leading uh, instrumentalists from the Grande Région that uh, Tony has pulled together, a wonderful group. Uh, the Musique Militaire Grand Ducal as well is, is on hand, and there are this fantastic professional uh, military band, of course. And they perform uh, the, with the Chœur uh, de Chambre a lot. Absolutely, yeah, and wonderful uh, folks there. And uh, in addition to the uh, Chœur de Chambre de Luxembourg, on a aussi l'Académie pour Jeunes Voix du Chœur. Donc, uh, these are young people, children's voices, which uh, are really the, the uh, icing on the cake for the Carmina Burana. They really bring the whole thing to life and um, add some... Filigree. <laughs> I have to also mention dear colleagues, uh, Ludmilla Lokachuk, I hope I'm pronouncing that name uh, correctly, and uh, Petru Pavel, uh, the, who are respectively the soprano and the tenor uh, for the show. It's going to be spectacular. Don't miss it. Fantastic. So we've got so much music to look forward to. Thank you all for your time today. I know the organisers and the <laughs> soloists and the musicians, they can never quite relax till afterwards and you're on this lovely high, hopefully high, after the event. Thank you all so much Thank for you. your time. Thank you, Thank you Lisa. Lisa.